0: Reading Short and Deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep. The Heart's Awakening by H. Devere Stackpool. This is first published in the Windsor Magazine, December 1915. Uh, has one illustration by H. R. Miller, and it's, I've it's a very nice illustration. Um, I bring this up because uh, while flipping through this magazine, I saw this illustration. I said, oh, a caveman story. Um, <laughs> I love caveman stories. They are very, very highly out of fashion. There was a brief resurgence of them, I guess, in the early 80s. Um, there's some movies. You know, it, it's it comes back and again, but I always – think about how science fiction most people think of science fiction as uh about being about the future and that's not necessarily the case. Science fiction can be set in the present or the recent past. But actually H. G. Wells, I think, pioneered this whole thing where science fiction stories can be prehistorical, or as they called them back then, prehistorical romances. Um and in the early twentieth century, like When this story came out and the late 19th century, when H.G. Wells was first writing them, stories about cavemen and women were highly in fashion. And there was a, a number of stories. And I think they're really important to understanding people of the period and human beings because they are a result of new knowledge about geology and archaeology and the age of the earth. And I think stories like this are ways of dealing with that. And because of that, you know, seeing them in the raw, like how they thought of them back then, rather than in some sort of modern comedy that's riffing off of those ideas, those movies from the 60s with cave women running around um, and dinosaurs. I mean... We have all that in here, but it also is a philosophical story. It has an idea at its core. So that's what attracted me to it. Uh, And then I suggested it to you. I liked reading the
1: story, but um, (laughs) I I liked it a lot for a lot of reasons. I think it actually is uh, lyrically beautiful in many ways. Hmm. I think that it raises some important uh, philosophical questions. Uh, the, the the craze for the, the renewed interest in prehistoric fiction that you mentioned in the 80s, I think really is most signally begun with the publication in 1980 of Gene Owl's The Clan of the Cave Bear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say that like The Clan of the Cave Bear, this story, the Heart's Awakening, um, is not, in my view uh, an attempt to use the growing scientific knowledge about prehistory in a historically accurate way. It is, in fact, quite the opposite, okay. uh, and so. Well, for example, um, whatever these people are, uh, the main two characters, uh, l- let me give a quick summary so that mm-hmm. we, you know, people understand what we're talking about. The, the, the story opens with um, the moon setting, dawn arising and a man and woman uh, walking from the sea. The man behind with a club, the woman ahead with a package uh, she's carrying, a big package um, that has seaweed and crabs. Um, Mm -hmm. They're making their way through this countryside, which is dangerous. Hence, she is uh, committed to being the the carrier and he the protector. They get through this. meeting different things along the way we get to see what the landscape looks like they become they get attacked by people who clearly want what she's carrying she could just run away and while he is fighting off two of the three attackers um because they would then take the uh, the spoils and and leave but she doesn't she stays and tries to protect them. And in the course of that protection, um, she is struck by the remaining attacker before uh, the man is able to dispatch him as well. Very, very graphic mm-hmm. descriptions of the encounter of Club with head and hand and crushing. And it's really, it's, it's astonishing how... Uh, unexpurgated that part of it is Mm -hmm. but it fits right into this wild primitive prehistoric landscape now um and then at the end something happens well what happens is she we find that there's a call that instinctively makes people at a certain time of year go from the high land that they live on down to a valley, over some mountains, down to the sea, gather this stuff, and then bring it back. Uh, but there are some few people who don't seem to feel this irresistible call, but rather wait for the pilgrims to come back with stuff and try to take it from them. They, they want the sea's edible bounty also, but they don't feel the need to go and get it, and so they have a problem. Um, they cause problems. At the end, after having been attacked— the man and woman continue. Uh, they don't speak. They're pre linguistic, although they can make noises. Mm-hmm. It happens that the noise that we're reported to uh, is the man, when sh- the woman goes too slowly, says, hike, 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 which I guess mm-hmm. if you speak English, it <laughs> looks mm-hmm. like the word hike. Um, mm-hmm. and she manages to get close to where they, they live, and then she just falls together as the phrase is, she just crumbles Mm -hmm. and he realizes that she is terribly wounded, although he doesn't really know what death is, but, but she dies and he, he screams out, he calls out in lament. And if, if I understand the story correctly, that is the title. Yeah. The, The heart has awakened to grief. It is violence that actually awakens the heart. Not love, but violence. Not gaining, but losing. It's a very interesting story in a lot of Mm -hmm. ways. But I think it's a parable, or perhaps a fairy tale.
0: It's very fairy tale-like.
1: I'm glad you agree. Um, The style is, um, and at some point I'd like to read some of it, the style is in many ways more poetic than it is prosaic mm-hmm. and that scientific knowledge that you mention is being radically violated here there are
0: right? a number of
1: errors if you treat this as a true story
0: well, <laughs> oh, but that, but that's true to history point. i guess or true to true to paleontology
1: that then that's precisely my point it's like uh, the uh, the the creationist museum in Kentucky that has human beings uh, in the same diorama as dinosaurs. Right. Right. There are no dinosaurs anywhere in the world, uh, unless you think of birds as you know the descendants of dinosaurs. There are no dinosaurs anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. When we have any hominid that looks at all like a human being, and any hominid that looks at all like Millar's illustration, they just don't exist. Pterodactyls, which are crucial. In this story, pterodactyls only live in the very late Jurassic period, Mm -hmm. um, which is when dinosaurs live. But they are extinct later, not at the same time. Mm -hmm. And we go through a valley of the little horses. Now, this is a period in which people had already discovered the bones of Eohippus, the dawn horse. And they knew darn well that Eohippus came eons, literal eons, after the demise of the dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. But the Eohippus was gone eons before we had hominids that looked anything like Homo sapiens. So we have three distinctly different geologic periods. The fact that Stackpool has conflated them, I think, is a way of letting us know that our imaginations are sparked by scientific discovery Mm -hmm. but the real stories are mythic they are not scientific
0: now i assume you know this um uh because you probably did a little research but i doubt our readers have most of our 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 listeners have most of our listeners may have heard of a movie or a book called the blue lagoon very famous story um famously in the 80s i think turned into a movie it's kind of a caveman story although it's not really because it's uh castaways as it were but it's two children growing up on an island separated from uh the rest of humanity and basically recreating uh the garden of eden uh and it's sort of a fairy tale retelling of that he is the author of that book uh, H. Devere Stackpool. and this is, again, a kind of a Garden of Eden story. It's a rough Garden of Eden with very many mythic things happening. Pterodactyls absolutely would not have been <laughs> in anywhere close to human existence. Horses, yes. Pterodactyls, no. Uh, horses of this kind, probably not. Um, no. There are a number of major blunders in terms of strict paleontology paleontological
1: history <laughs> however but they, but they may not be narrative blunders those may be I the agree. signals I to agree. the kind of world we're in I,
0: I i whether whether they're deliberate ignorance on the part of the author just trying to tell a story or as you are crediting him with you know being very subtle and showing this i think either way It's doing what it's intending to... uh, We we are recognizing what it's doing as its intention. Um, The title makes the story so important because whose heart is awakening in this story? I don't think it's necessarily even just man's heart as, as a male's heart. I think it's humanity's heart in the sense that this is the dawn time, the time when... Humans are no longer animals because of what they're recognizing. And I, I think that this mythic idea of love, the heart being awakened, is actually, you know, better understood not to be exclusively human, but maybe exclusively mammalian. Right? Snakes, when they lay their eggs, don't cuddle them afterwards. Or if they do, they don't cuddle them for long, they go off. Um, Insects lay their eggs in places that will be useful for their offspring, but they don't spend a lot of time nursing them. In fact, they spend zero time. But mammals, like human beings and dogs and cats, do spend time with their offspring, and do spend time with their mate. And that aspect, especially in humans had to have come at some point. It's almost like a chicken and an egg story, right? When did the chicken which came first, the chicken or the egg? The answer is at some point. <laughs> and here we're getting a, a very fairy tale retelling of that. And I think it's quite poignant. And and the other weird thing that happens is who's telling the story in this story. And the way H. DeVere Stackpool starts the story He's distancing us from the period by comparing it to yet another science fictional idea. So I'd just like to read uh, the first couple of paragraphs and show those to everyone. Uh, by the way, there's five chapters and they have chapter he- headings. The first one is Plunder from the Sea. A waning moon, vast and vague, hung above the icy blue of dawn. And all down the coast the sea, sea, beating upon the rocks, sang to the land a thritty song, desolate as the wind that blew from the distant mountains. The mountains lay to the east, the sea to the west. To the north lay the mountains, and to the south a vast plain bordered by the sea and reaching to the eastern foothills." And north and east and almost to the sea, edge in the south, the forms and fumes of volcanoes stamped and stained the sky. So we've got very much a poetic device happening in sound and in description, too. We're actually getting a picture of the world. And as you see in those later sort of comedic movies... Uh, showing you caveman days, and there's many of them. Uh, one of them is by Mel Brooks, I believe. Very, very funny stuff. Um, in the in these caveman days, there's always volcanoes exploding, right? <laughs> I don't think that the Earth was massively more geologically active than it is now, back then, when humans were wandering around. But it's sort of an indication of, of, you know, We're in early times, primordial days. Anyways, the next paragraph is where it gets really science fictional. Some inhabitant of Mars, had he suddenly been placed here, would have stood fascinated and held by two things the enormity of the awful moon, so huge, so ghostly, yet so vividly real, and despite its vagueness, so evidently a solid body and not a cloud and the activity of those volcanic hills in the midst of the absolute and utter desolation. So we're getting a picture of this world. We get the shape of the land. We get the power of the sea, the song of the sea. And more importantly, we get to look up, up to the stars, and more importantly, up to this thing in the sky. And that is so cool because... H.G. Wells, right, the guy who just, you know, 20 years before is pioneering this stuff, is writing stories that go to the moon and go back to the dawn of man. And here we've got exactly that. We've got a story that goes up to the moon, goes to Mars, says Mars is very different from Earth. If a Martian were here, he would see this. Amazing. And then we become that Martian we become that strange being seeing the dawn of man that's what i'm talking this is total science fiction story even though it is a fairy tale in the sense that none of these things actually happened it's very um <laughs> once upon a time
1: there i've actually uh Published about the the roots of fairy tale of science fiction in fairy tales, um, you're preaching to the converted here, my friend. Mm-hmm. Um, I would point out the uh, the end the beginning of that third paragraph that you point to some inhabitant of Mars. If you take a look at the end of the Star by Wells, which is considered by many to be one of the ten best stories in the English language, mm-hmm. the the Star. Is one of a cataclysm, of a near miss of the planet Earth by a comet wishing through our system. and uh, But it doesn't destroy the Earth. It just makes huge, huge geologic changes. And the last paragraph suddenly switches viewpoint and says in Wells's short story, the Martian astronomers, for there are astronomers on Mars, although they are very different beings from man, were naturally profoundly interested by these things. They saw them from their own standpoint, of course. And then it goes on. And the conclusion of the science fiction parable requires the repositioning of the viewpoint to Mars. And I think you're quite right that, that that's what uh, Stackpole is doing here. But if you'll indulge me, I want... Uh, you, you've shown me how you read the first two paragraphs. Um, You and I read them slightly differently. Uh, Yours is a perfectly reasonable reading. It may, in fact, be the majority reading. But I found myself reading them very slowly and reading them as if they were lyric poetry. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. say lyric because, you know, that's... Who is the speaker? That was a question you raised. So let me try them again. A waning moon, vast and vague hung above the icy blue of dawn, and all down the coast, the sea, beating upon the rocks, sang to the land a thritty song, desolate as the wind that blew from the distant mountains. The mountains lay to the east, the sea to the west, to the north lay mountains, and to the south a vast plain bordered by the sea, And reaching to the eastern foothills and north and east and almost to the sea edge in the south, the forms and fumes of volcanoes stamped and stained the sky. Um, You said, quite rightly, look, it's just full of poetic devices. And what I'm Mm -hmm. trying to emphasize in this reading... The use of alliteration, like vast and vague, dawn and down, stamped the stain the sky. The use of repetition, the mountains, enjambment, read to the next mountains, the east, west, north, and south. There are so many things here. The rhythm of it, the sounds of it. When we begin this, we do not yet have people, mm-hmm. right? This is just the scene setting for where people will be. And the people that we get, we are told not only that they are pre-linguistic, but that they are utterly unclothed. They have no clothes. Mm-hmm. Now, this is, this is crazy, by the way, uh, <laughs> because we're told that the club has been shaped by being charred. So apparently these people already have fire, but they don't have the ability to... Uh, to use t- to make clothing out of animals. They have the ability to use animal skins to make a package, mm-hmm. but it never occurs to them to use animal skins to protect their bodies. Uh, again, it doesn't make logical sense, but in fairy tale terms, it's perfect because these are prelapsarian people. Unlike the, the two youngsters in the Blue Lagoon, we don't see these two having children.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We don't see these two finding a way back out into the world. And that's ambiguous at the end of the blue lagoon, whether they're alive or dead, they're found sort of unconscious. Um, Will they survive or not? We don't know. Um, Here we know the man sees himself going through the rest of his life, bereft of his helpmeet. And I use that term because it comes right out of Genesis Mm -hmm. in Genesis. Violence is the result of having been pushed out of paradise. What got them to be pushed out of paradise, Adam and Eve, was knowledge of their nakedness. Here, they have no knowledge of their nakedness, but they have violence nonetheless. And that violence gives them the knowledge that is, that killing is terrible, that this will will kill me emotionally. The heart's awakening here comes from violence creating loss. In mm-hmm. some sense, it's, it's the flip side of the story of Genesis. But it's equally mythic because there are no pterodactyls and no Eohipp- hippie.
0: And there's no tree. The tree Indeed. of knowledge here yeah. is, is a brutal club or in in the case of the injury here it's a rock um and in fact the geological aspect of the story when they they reach this land of basalt um it looks as if the giants had fought over it they'd thrown rocks around at each other and of course there were no giants before there were dinosaurs and and in fact, the dinosaurs in this story are are dying out. The pterodactyls are going here to die in this particular pace that they pa- pass through. Um, it's it's very myth. I agree. I, I I'm pretty confident that he knew that these were not geologically concurrent or or geologically uh, at the same time. He just is using that as an indicator here. And yet when The attack comes, they come by stones. This man had got the blow of the stone, right? And the stones are thrown as if the giants, and now to us, they are giants, our ancient ancestors, who we know very, very much nothing about, including, you know, if they had names for each other. At some point, we start noticing, oh, they're burying their dead. And in fact, that might be the scene that happens after this. But the knowledge here doesn't come from a snake exactly. It comes from the brutal truth that he is bereft of that thing that he loves. He doesn't have the word for it, but that's what's going on. So I want to read that ending because it's really great. Good. The woman's eyes were still fixed on the man, filled with a wild perplexity and her breathing heavy and labored was that of a creature drawing to its last gasp. The man squatted down beside her, knowing nothing of the extent of her injury, knowing nothing of the last desperate effort that enabled her to climb to the top of the last barrier dividing them from their home. He saw the light now fading out of her eyes. He placed his hand upon her chest. He felt her body arch upwards, stiffen and collapse. Then he knew that she was dead. She would never walk again, or move, or help him, or be with him. He knew little of pain, and that's actually mentioned earlier in the story, how scarred their bodies are, how immune to heat and cold they are, and yet they exist powerfully. He knew little of heat and pain, and he had never known sorrow. His memory was so vague that in his mind the woman had always been with him and now she would never be with him again. He looked at her, and then he looked away to the great setting sun and the blazing western sea. Then, as if stricken by the desolation that lay before him, he raised his face to the blind skies above, calling to them in a lamentable voice, waking the echoes of the hills to repeat what they had never heard before. And what what that where it is <laughs> what that sound is is the first sound. Right?
1: It's 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 the wailing of loss. Yeah. That's the heart's awakening. When the heart awakens, it awakens by breaking. Right. It's a it's a very powerful story. I'm glad you read that. I, I'm glad you started it far back enough to begin with the woman. Mm-hmm. Because I think There is something that the story of Genesis told in a patriarchal text um, tends to make it possible to read Eve as the accomplice of Satan, Mm -hmm. that she is so tempted by the phallic snake that she disobeys God the Father. And then, having eaten the apple, she tempts Adam by presenting it to him. So the woman is the bringer of death. The woman is the real cause. Without her in between, Adam would have stayed in paradise. But one can look at it a different way. We can look at the special role of women and their sexuality and their attachment to men. The three consequences of the fall are childbirth, um, sorrow, and death. That is, she is going to... uh, It's childbirth, labor, that is, tilling the fields, and death. Women have to do those things. But in Stackpole's world, women actually are emphasized for their other powers. In the Blue Lagoon the woman, give, the girl, gives birth to a child mm-hmm. who is with them. And although the child is a male, they call the child Hannah because that's the only name they've ever heard a child be called. Mm-hmm. They're so young themselves, so they call him Hannah. Um, Hannah is the Hebrew word for grace. Stackpole, I think here, is giving us that silent woman who bears her burden and will not abandon her man who provides the food from the sea. She wants to go forward. She is in the lead. And she is the one who could save herself, but does not. I think if there is a fall that we're to see here, it is a fall that man suffers for not having appreciated the value of woman. There's a feminist way to understand this story that makes it a very powerful counterpoint to the biblical telling. Or to put it another way, that story of creation is one about which there is always more to say.
0: Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com
1: forward audio.